Good afternoon, and welcome to Citizen K, a weekly current affairs program featuring in-depth interviews and perspectives. I'm Kareem Mosna. This week on Citizen K, new statistics reveal that for the first time, half of women incarcerated in Canada are Indigenous. An assistant law professor from Queen's will share some insight coming up later in the show. But first, unhoused residents living in an encampment near the Integrated Care Hub, or ICH, will not face eviction after a special council meeting on Thursday, May 12th. Councillor Strahd and Councillor Neal had put forth motions to address the concerns surrounding the unhoused living in the encampment. The motions included a pause for consultation with public health, the ICH, and encampment residents to help them find agreeable housing options, along with a six-month pilot project to move residents to a new area within the park. Ten delegates spoke at the meeting. Justine McIsaac is the Consumption Treatment Coordinator with the ICH. She spoke about the need for proximity to vital services for those struggling with addictions. Myself and others who have been working the front lines for the past decade have witnessed firsthand the devastating impacts of the drug poisoning and housing crisis that has destroyed the lives of our unhoused neighbours. This harm has only deepened during the pandemic over the last two years. The relationships we have spent building over the last 20 plus months has allowed us to intervene with care and life-saving services. I would like to discuss with you today why this potential eviction would disrupt people's care and lead to the ultimate consequences of criminalization and death. The people who live independently within the vicinity of the ICH do so because they have access to basic human essentials such as food, bathroom facilities, showers, and community. While meeting some of their basic needs, they also have access to essential care and safe consumption support as they maintain some independence in their own personal space. Mainly, however, the people who live independently within the vicinity of the ICH do so because of the valid fear and imminent risk of death that they are, are genuinely facing. What I see just beyond the fence line is a village of people who are accepting of each other despite their struggles. I see people who have committed to caring for each other and have continued to uphold these commitments. Speaker Tony Thornton says these evictions are a United Nations violation. This treatment of unhoused people is unacceptable and it's defied the pandemic homelessness protocols outlined by the United Nations Human Rights Coalition. The UN protocol says that governments may not remove residents from encampments without meaningfully engaging them and identifying alternative places to live that are acceptable to them. Any such removal from their homes or from the land which they occupy without the provision of appropriate forms of legal protection is defined as a forced eviction and is considered a gross violation of human rights. Instead of allowing residents of encampments to identify alternatives that are acceptable to unhoused people themselves, city officials in Kingston have decided what's acceptable and what is not. So police and bylaw officers evict residents of encampments and tell them to go to the under-resourced ICH, which isn't suitable for nor can accommodate everyone. These evictions have been happening for years now and they need to stop. Other delegates referred to the eviction as immoral and an act of violence. Tammy Lunn is a homeowner in the Bell Park area, and she shared her perspective. My perspective on this issue is from the other side. Um, first, I'd like to express my disappointment with City Council for once again putting forth motions and preparing to cast votes that will directly affect my life, my health, my safety, my peaceful enjoyment of my home, and that of my community without consulting the community that's involved. I was hopeful that the Moulton report would have broken this pattern, 
apparently not. As a resident and landowner adjoining the KP Trail, Bell Park, and a close neighbor to the ICH, I have concerns for this six month pilot project proposed, which will allow an undetermined number of campers to take up residence in Bell Park area. My first concern is everyone's safety. One large encampment or one encampment in one single location decreases everybody's safety right across the board. So residents, business owners, campers themselves. I live very close to the care hub and I get to experience it after dark every night. And it's not all peaches and cream and it's not all safe. And what infuriates me is that people don't see our side of it. They don't hear our side of it. There has to be some balance here. Crystal Wilson is an advocate for the homeless and stressed the need to build trust with the communities formed in the encampment. What we, what we have learned in the cabin community is a lot of the work that we have to do is to build trust. And we know that when we constantly displace people, when we push them from place to place, we're eroding trust in the system. We're eroding people's, people's likelihood of exiting homelessness. City of Kingston Chief Administrative Officer Hurdle was questioned by council about the situation surrounding the city's lease on the integrated care hub property. It's written it generally applies to city-owned properties. Uh, private properties are different because individuals that own private properties do have the ability to contact the police if individuals refuse to vacate their property. Um, in this case, though, having said that, the city is um, holding a lease on this particular property, and we know that um, the property owner would not allow encampments and would actually notify the city of non-compliance with the lease, which could um, put the city in a difficult situation in terms of maintaining that lease long-term for the integrated care hub. Having said that, um, Councillor McLaren, the property owner does not have concerns if the tents are located right next to his property. Would we be interpreting that as not touching the people on the integrated care hub land? Sir Hurdle. Thank you, and through you, Mr. Mayor. So we, like I said, the protocol applies to the city-owned land. So if we're being asked to, but we're not being asked to put a pause on the protocol, uh, the property owner still has its rights. And my recommendation would be that we comply and work with the property owner and have individuals actually be situated on city-owned property right next to the integrated care hub. That would be my recommendation in order to not jeopardize our lease in the long term. Thank you. And if we were to leave them there uh, and jeopardizing the lease, or what could happen to the integrated care hub? Thank you. And uh, through you, Mr. Mayor. So we, um, based on my conversations with the property owner, if the city was non-compliant, uh, the property owner will be would be looking at cancelling the lease, which means that um, we would need to find another location, probably fairly quickly, if we wanted to minimize disruption on services for the integrated care hub. Council effectively passed the proposed motions, calling for a pause in consultation, along with a six-month pilot project. Councillor Strahd's motion also included setting rules to address concerns of homeowners in the Bell Park area. 
However, Councillor Boehm warns against creating a false sense of hope. What we're doing here is is trying to solve a problem and we simply lack the resources to solve it. And so we keep kicking the can down the road. Well, we'll provide a little bit of a temporary pass here or we'll we'll, we'll give six months. And I, I would almost you know, be willing to bet that within a month or two, we're back in the exact same position. And then it's, well, another two month pass. And, and, and that is what I don't want to happen here. I don't want to create that false hope that we're going to be able to do something magically while lacking the resources to do so. Those resources need to come from the higher levels of government. Those policies uh, need to be affected. Let's be honest, can Kingston really affect the, in, the inflation of the entire country? No, no, not realistically. Can we solve the affordable housing crisis in our city alone? Not, not with the current policies from provincial governments. The Cataraqui Union of Tenants hosted a housing day of action on Saturday, May 14th at Market Square behind City Hall. I spoke with member Kyle Philo about the housing crisis. What is it you know you hope to, to, to see from putting on events like this and drawing awareness to, to this issue? Yeah, well, I mean, awareness is obviously a big part of it, but I think that we, we need to go a lot beyond awareness. I think most people are aware that there's a housing crisis um, because everybody's, you know, house prices in Kingston have gone up 44% in the last year, which is ridiculous. Um, so it's it goes beyond awareness because everyone lives within the housing crisis. It's about, you know, actually taking action, actually organizing your building, um, you know, fighting back against these landlords because right now they have... If everyone's, if the tenants aren't organized, you know, it's a, it's a cakewalk to be able to just keep driving people into homelessness and keeping these uh, these ridiculous rent hikes up year after year. And of course, uh, with the uh, the eviction, uh, which didn't come to pass at this point, but with the with the encampment um, in Bell Park outside the ICH, um, you know, any thoughts on how that sh should be handled? Well, yeah, they should be put in houses and social. They should be social housing built for these people, and they should be put in them, and they should get the uh, addiction treatment and uh, mental health treatment that they need. You know, it's it, stuff like ongoing full council meetings about, oh, should we evict them this time or not? Is just a, such a it's a band aid over gangrene. You know, it's not going to be like like there needs to be a long term solution to this problem, and it's building social housing and you know, getting decommodifying the housing market because you know at this rate. The housing is more of an investment than it is a place to live and that means there's only going to be more and more people on the streets, more and more people using drugs and more and more people dying from the uh, poisonous drug supply. You are listening to Citizen K on CFRC 101.9 FM, CFRC.ca, and on podcast. I'm Kareem Mosna. According to new statistics from Canada's prison ombudsman, for the first time, half of Canada's female penitentiary population are Indigenous. Lisa Kerr is an assistant professor with the Faculty of Law at Queen's University. She joined me to share some perspective on this. I, unfortunately, this is a story that is now very familiar to people in my field that the rate of Indigenous incarceration um, only seems to grow and it has done for a couple of decades now. For the last 10 years, the rate of non-Indigenous imprisonment has been declining. Um, over the course of the pandemic, hundred, you know, the, the rate of incarceration for women went down by 100 for non-Indigenous women. Um, but it, it didn't go down for Indigenous women. So that's part of how uh, we have this proportion, this overrepresentation in terms of the proportion. Um, the overall system is getting a bit smaller, 
but the system is becoming more unequal. So this is a, a case of fewer incarcerated individuals. That is why this is such a um, disproportionate figure uh, with regards to it being, from what I'm seeing here, exactly 298 for Indigenous and exactly 298 non-Indigenous women are currently in the prison system in Canada. Yeah, that's right. And if you look at you know the very beginning of the pandemic, you had 406 non-Indigenous women. So that's down to, to 298. Um, and then at the beginning of the pandemic, you had 249 Indigenous women. So it kind of dipped initially with the court closures and so on and admissions being down, but then it, it went up. So we have this really big question, which is, you know, why is it that um, you know, that non-Indigenous women would, um, you know, that that group would get smaller, particularly over the course of the pandemic, um, but that that same benefit wouldn't happen for Indigenous women. It's really, uh, it just doesn't seem to matter what we do. Somehow the effects are un unequal. Even when we're doing a good thing, like shrinking our prison system, we manage to do it in an unequal way. Do you feel there are some some deep-seated factors that are contributing to this. The rate of imprisonment is just a mirror that is held up to society, right? And particularly in women's prisons where so many of the offenses are committed in circumstances um, where there's all kinds of trauma at play, um, where there's serious socioeconomic disadvantage, where families have often been really negatively impacted by family separation, whether that's residential schools or the child welfare system, where there's been unequal access to education um, and where men in the community might be struggling as well. Um, and, and, you know, that impacting, you know, the health of families and intimate partner violence and, and so on. So um, I, I would say that those broad social conditions um, are part of what uh, feeds into um, the rate of offending for Indigenous women. And then there's a big question about whether our police and our prosecutors and our judges and even our prison officials are doing a good enough job to respond to that social context, right? Or are we really meeting people where they're at and recognizing what went into the things they've done and offering healing, or are we, um, you know, decontextualizing their offense from their life and offering punishment instead? The phrase you just used in there about meeting people where they're at, that's something that uh, I've heard from those that work more in social work. That is, is something that is um, at, at the core of, of helping individuals. Yeah, and I really think that we need to meet people where they're at in our law of sentencing as well, because if you look at the legal principles that apply to everyone in our sentencing courts, um, the law says that punishment is supposed to be fit. It is supposed to be a reflection not only of the offense, but also of the circumstances of the offender and their actual level of moral blameworthiness. So to me, you know, those principles and, and the Supreme Court of Canada case law is, is clear on this as well. Those principles demand that legal actors like crowns and judges, um, that they get into um, what this person's actual circumstances were and how we can really think about their level of moral blameworthiness. 
Um, and, you know, there's there are positive things to say on this front in terms of the Canadian legal system. You know, we do have a commitment to considering those issues. We have the Gladue case law. Uh, we have a provision in the criminal code that mandates judges to take a look at this stuff. Um, you know, but it's taken, it really has taken a few decades to sort of figure out what that means and get the um, institutions sort of set up in a way that this information really does get to judges and really can impact sentencing decisions. You, you however, sound optimistic. Uh, you know, you said in a, re in a release that we can fix this. Um, would you say that you feel that we are headed in the right direction towards finding solutions? Well, I, honestly, I have no choice but to be optimistic. Uh, <laughs> it's a personality flaw of mine, um, but uh, it's just too demoralizing to focus on these issues without seeing um, the, the you know, what are hopeful possibilities. And so one thing to say is to keep in mind that when we're talking about women's federal imprisonment, we are still talking about small numbers, right? We're talking about um, fewer than 600 women total, fewer than 300 indigenous women. This is a country of 38 million people. Um, this is a small number. And I say that because I don't want Canadians to get a sort of misleading uh, negative stereotype in their head. Um, it is a small number of women who wind up in federal prison. Um, and uh, you could compare the scope of imprisonment to the United States, and we do not have anything resembling that, that much imprisonment. Um, and so, and I think that's very important for being able to fix it, right? And I just refuse to believe that in a country with the resources uh, and the commitments to human rights and equality that Canada has, that we can't do better for those 298 women um, and that we can't decarcerate a number that is that small. And so, you know, I just, that's, that's sort of one point of hope is that we, we haven't put hundreds of thousands of women into custody the way the United States has. Federal imprisonment remains extremely rare for women and fairly rare for men as well. Um, the other thing to say is, you know, we do have Gladue sentencing. We do have a commitment uh, to thinking about collective experiences and social context when sentencing people. And in an era where I think consciousness around um, residential schools and its impacts and, you know, the work of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, where that consciousness has been growing, you know, I think that um, there's really deep acceptance and commitment within the judiciary and within Crown prosecutors to, to thinking about those issues uh, at sentencing. Um, we also have a federal government that is taking some positive steps, right? The liberals are passing a bill right now that will remove a number of mandatory minimums and actually allow judges to avoid jail and prison where appropriate, um, expanding access to conditional sentences, right? The ability to impose house arrest and keep people with their families and in community instead of sending them into custody. Um, so, I mean, there are positive things happening, but the problem has also been intractable for a long time and getting worse. So you have to keep it kind of all in mind. For those not familiar, can you talk about Gladue? Can you give a, a bit a bit more context there? Absolutely. Yeah. So in 1996, the federal government reformed the sentencing part of the criminal code. So these are all the rules that apply um, that tell judges what to do at sentencing. And one of those rules said 
told judges to consider the circumstances of Aboriginal offenders. That was the language of the day. And what did that mean? Well, a case called Gladue came along from the Supreme Court of Canada in 1999. And it's a really robust interpretation of that provision. And it tells judges that in every single case where they're aware that the defendant is indigenous, that judges have an independent legal duty to make sure that they inquire into their circumstances. So if you've got someone in front of you who didn't mention anything, right, about how their, how their family or their community was impacted by residential schools, the judge, it's incumbent on the judge to inquire and to get a sentence report called the Gladue Report that would investigate um, those connections and those impacts. Um, and that's really important because a lot of people, especially, you know, 19 or 20 year old, um, you know, they're not really ready to like identify and make those connections and talk about them. And so it's incumbent on the judge to make the investigations. Um, so, so that I always say Gladue is really important for improving the quality of information at a sentencing hearing, making sure that judges who are of course, largely white middle-class people um, who may not know the histories and the impacts um, that we have to pause and have a moment where they learn and get educated. Um, but, so I think it has improved the quality of information, but it's been hard if judges, you know, even if they want to impose a non-custodial sentence or some, you know, do something more in the restorative justice vein, you know, if there's a mandatory minimum standing in their way, that kind of trumped Gladue. Or if, you know, the criminal code said, you can't give this person house arrest, you have to send them to custody, that trumped Gladue. So we, you know, we had an important development with Gladue, but it was sat in some tension with other legislative rules. And I think we are kind of <laughs> getting toward addressing some of this and fixing it. As a professor at Queen's University, are these issues that you touch upon with your students? Oh, absolutely. This is the heart of my class on sentencing and prison law. In fact, this last semester, I did three classes on, you know, thinking about equality and sentencing, um, you know, and talking not only about Indigenous people, but, you know, increasingly there are calls for judges to think about anti-Black racism in sentencing. Um, and, you know, I try to connect it as well to the actual workings and administration of the prison system, right? So oftentimes we think about it in terms of sentencing, but not in terms of, you know, okay, if we have... 50% indigenous women in our prisons, then our prison programming should look really different, right? And we should have a commissioner of corrections who's indigenous or who's attending to indigenous programming and community development and so on, right? And so, yeah, absolutely. This is central to the conversations we have at Queens Law School for sure. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for sharing today, Lisa. I appreciate it. You are most welcome. Thanks for your interest. You are listening to Citizen K on CFRC 101.9 FM, CFRC.ca, and on podcast. I'm Kareem Mosna. In other news, the Kingston District Labor Council will host a rally in Napanee following the firings of six employees of the Lennox and Addington Interval House. The Interval House provides shelter for abused women and children. The workers had picketed the shelter for five months. A new contract was ratified. Then they were fired the day they returned to work. I spoke with Brooke Phillips, who was one of the six employees of the Lennox and Addington Interval House who lost her position. So Brooke, uh, can you give me a, a bit of information here? What, what, what was your, your job at, uh, at the Interval House? 
Sure. I was um, a residential women's services worker, so I worked in the, uh, in the shelter. Um, providing support to women and children um, who had fled domestic violence as they as they did so and were in need of safe shelter. What what was your response? Uh, you know when when you you know we're, we're we're basically this new contract was was ratified and then you come into work and and you're 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 given this information. What 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 was your response? Um, I was. I guess I had been hopeful that um, that following the strike, because we had ratified um, the employer's offer, uh, they had made the offer, we ratified it. Um, we had, I guess maybe it was naively, um, thought that we were going to come to an agreement and be able to, uh, to get back to work. Um, we, it took some time between the time of ratification was the 29th of March, and then it took some time to, uh, for the lawyers to work together to, uh, to draft a return to work protocol. Um, we were advised that we needed to return to work on the 28th of, uh, of April after the agreement had, uh, had, been, uh, had been agreed upon by both sides. And, uh, and so we started sending emails to the employer about schedule and what, what time we should show up because the nature of the work is that it's uh, often shift work. Um, so when we didn't receive a response to that, the, the response that we did receive was don't come on the 28th, come to attend a return to work meeting on the 29th. And at that time, um, each person was scheduled for a, for a half an hour meeting and when they arrived they received a notice of their termination. So I think we attended those meetings thinking that it was going to be a conversation about, you know, how to return to work, um, what the expectations were, any changes that had happened uh, in the shelter over the course of the six months, um, or any change to positions or things to expect uh, come up to speed on, uh, on how to get back to work effectively, and instead um, we were just terminated. During those six months that led up to all this, uh, I understand you know you and, and the five others were were trying to uh, to do things to improve your working conditions. Can you tell a little bit yeah. about what it is that you you, you were asking for? Sure, um, we uh, we had tried to move the language of our collective agreement closer to. Um, the language that was being utilized by uh, sister agencies like Kingston Interval House and Three Oaks that were that are both about a half an hour down the road from Lennox and Addington Interval House in in things like um, having union representation for uh, for any disciplinary return to work or accommodation meetings, um, things like uh, hiring practices that like if jobs were vacant that they would be filled in a timely fashion um, and uh, ironically uh, uh, that we would we wanted to have a sort of a, a more clear um, process of progressive discipline so that we wouldn't be faced with situations like being presented with a letter with a with a bunch of evidence that that staff hadn't been made aware of were concerns um, that led up to their termination from their employment. We wanted it to be more like if there's an issue presenting, that that be discussed with the staff person. Well, the Kingston District Labor Council is hosting a rally coming up on June 4th in Napanee. Yeah. Um, I believe that the location and time is still yet to be determined at this point. 
and uh, and just wanted to again yeah. hear hear your your yeah. your your feelings about this rally being held. It's nice to know that that. Um, Others are sharing those emotions with us and supporting us and recognizing that this is unfair treatment, very encouraging for the staff that had been terminated, that they're, they're not kind of fighting this on their own. And that's all for Citizen K this week. Citizen K was produced with the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences at Queen's University. CFRC 101.9 FM broadcasts from Kingston, Ontario on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. Thank you for listening. I'm Kareem Mosna.